0: Many years ago, I was working in my first year out of college in the corporate world, and I remember that I had the responsibility in that year to represent my company to a customer. We had a a support team that was in another city that did the actual work that this customer required, but I was the local interface to the customer. My job was to represent the company to the customer, understand what He wanted and make sure that the team provided what he wanted and needed. I need to make sure the work got done correctly. And the reason I remember it so well is this customer was well known as not easy to please. But he was also well known as being easy to upset. That that was the reputation he had. He was just one of those difficult guys to get along with. The support team, I remember one time, had done something wrong. And this was fairly early in my relationship with this customer. The, the bottom line is, we'd screwed up. And I had the privilege of going to tell the customer that we had a problem. A problem that we had created, and it was landing on his desk. Needless to say, he was a little angry. He, he wanted to know who had made the mistake, who was responsible I kept telling him, I'm responsible. He said, no, who is responsible? I said, I'm responsible. I am your representative. I am responsible. He knew I personally had not done it, but I kept telling him I was responsible. I would get this fixed, and I would let him know when it was done. I left him, and I worked with the team, and eventually they solved the problem and got it rectified, and I went and informed the customer, and I remember this well because from that day forward, I had a great relationship with this difficult man. He understood that I would take things seriously for him. I would do what I could, and in turn, I myself, I learned a lot about responsibility that day. What does it mean to be responsible? Well, this morning, the idea of responsibility plays a key role in our passage. We'll, we'll see that all of us today Have responsibility. We are responsible to represent our Savior to a hostile world. Our world is more like the angry customer than anything else. They are a hostile world, but we are responsible to represent Christ. We've covered the, the first 23 verses in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Paul has been celebrating transforming the work of Christ in these verses. He's been talking about how the gospel transforms people. It centers on the, the person and the work of Christ. He's been sharing how the gospel not only saves, but then it transforms people so that we're no longer like we were at the moment we became saved. Yet to understand that transforming work properly, Paul's wanting to make sure we understand who the person of Christ is and what it is he has done. Salvation comes by faith in Christ. Yet we cannot have faith if we do not know who Christ is and what he's done. We need to have these components to have that faith. So Paul's been describing the the rescue mission that the Father sent Christ on, how he rescued us from dominion of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of, of his own beloved Son, Jesus Christ. He's been talking about how we find our redemption, the forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ. He's talked about how God the Father did this so that Christ would be preeminent over all. He's preeminent over the old creation, this marvelous creation around us. Christ is preeminent over that and Christ is preeminent over the new creation, the church. Everything God has done has put Christ in that position of preeminence and through the crosswork of Christ, all this comes to a head as we find the forgiveness of our sins and we anticipate the day that Christ will then present us holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now, Christ is the center of all. And Paul's wrapped up the final verse that we looked at last week as he's been talking about the wonderful redemption we have in Christ, the, all that we have through faith. That, that comes from the sacrificial death of Christ, he, he's wrapped that up in informative that we must believe that Jesus died in our place. They suffered for our sins, and, and we need to hold on to that firmly. That is the gospel message. And as Paul wrapped up the verse we looked at last week, he noted that it's only through the gospel message, the message that Christ died for sins, that, that people can find eternal hope No one can have faith in Christ unless they hear of him. And Paul notes that that's his role. He is a minister. People must hear what Christ has done for them. They must hear of who he is, and that message has to spread throughout the world. That is the message that Paul carries. This morning, having mentioned his role as a minister of the gospel message last week, Paul elaborates on that. He elaborates on on what it means for him to be this minister, to have a duty that comes with the gospel message. The gospel message has been trusted to him by Paul. Paul is responsible for sharing it with others. Paul recognizes he has a stewardship responsibility, a stewardship of the gospel, a stewardship that, that makes him responsible. We're going to look at six verses this morning. That's a little more than we've looked at most of the the times. But once again, it's a single sentence. It's only one sentence in the original Greek language. That means these six verses, they really form an overall thought. Specifically, these verses are describing Paul's stewardship. that, That stewardship he has of the gospel. It's a testimonial of how he has faithfully been managing the responsibility he has. How he's responded to his duty. Now, as I mentioned other weeks, Paul is no longer here. If you look around, you will not find Paul. He will not show up on the evening news. He no longer carries the stewardship responsibility for the gospel. Yet the gospel message, the the message of Jesus Christ, is the only message that continues to give hope to our world. That message has been passed along. We now have that message. That means we now have the stewardship responsibility of that message. We must carry that message because it's the only message that will give hope to people. Now, now I expect that all of us would at least begrudgingly admit that. We'd recognize that, yes, we have that gospel message because we're sitting here this morning having accepted the message ourselves, having come to understand it we have that message and we'd at least begrudgingly admit that yeah that's the message all the world needs and we are responsible for carrying it but we probably taper off with that last part because the reality is most of us has probably not told a single person this past week about the message of Jesus Christ yeah we have the responsibility but we're not fulfilling our responsibility We magnify Christ by proclaiming the gospel. We know that. We are responsible for doing our part to magnify Christ. That is the main lesson that we will see this morning. We are responsible. That means we have a duty. We are responsible for doing our part. We cannot trail off and say, yeah, we know we should do it, but we're not. We are responsible for doing our part to magnify Christ. This morning, I'm going to ask us all to do some introspection. That means it's time for some self-examination. What are we doing? Are we fulfilling our responsibility? It is probable that that we all know we are to share the, the gospel message, but most of us are not doing it very faithfully. At least, we're not doing with much vigor. We are responsible for doing our part to magnify Christ. It's a responsibility that we have, a responsibility that that we may be failing at. Are we really able to say, I am responsible? This morning, we're going to look at Paul's testimonial. We're going to see how he looks back over his life, near the end of his life here, and, and says... I' fulfilled my responsibility, and as we do that, we're going to see that the stewardship responsibility, it carries an accounting with it, an accounting that will come before the one who gave us the responsibility. That's why it's called a stewardship. We've been entrusted with something to manage. It's really this accountability that drove Paul. He did what he did because he knew he would give an account. For his responsibility. The same accountability ought to drive us. Let's take a moment and read our verses this morning, picking up in verse 24 of Colossians chapter 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. "...of this church I was made a minister, according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. Remember, I mentioned this is one long sentence in the original Greek. In our English, we probably have it split in about four sentences. And I'm going to split in four ideas this this morning as well, because there are kind of four points that Paul lumps together under his main idea that we have a duty to do. We are responsible for doing our part to magnify Christ. And the first thing that we can learn from Paul's example is the first part of our responsibility that we can see demonstrated is that our part to magnify Christ involves hardships. Involves hardships. Look at verse 24. Paul sounds a little bit like he's off his rocker here at the beginning. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. He's crazy, isn't he? he? Who rejoices in suffering? Joy and suffering, that's a sign of serious mental illness, isn't it? We don't rejoice in in hardship, yet that's what Paul writes. Now, the world of Paul's day had a different perspective on suffering than we had, but it wasn't so different that people in that day thought it was something to jump and cheer about. Suffering was much more of an open part of life than, than it is now. After all, Paul's living in a time when you had the gladiatorial games where people suffered and actually died as a form of entertainment. There were slaves and impoverished people that, that were everywhere. And endure, they would endure great suffering just getting through the day. So, so suffering was much more um, obvious, maybe. It was more part of life. But... In that day, suffering was something that was considered that happened to the weak, the outcast, the powerless. It certainly was not something to rejoice in. Remember, Paul here is writing to a church in Classe, a group of people that he has personally never met. Also recall, Paul is writing from a Roman prison. Paul is suffering. In fact, he's suffering Because of the gospel. In the perspective of Paul's day, suffering comes because you're weak. Well, if Paul's sitting in prison because of the gospel, does that mean that the gospel is weak? Paul's situation might suggest that the gospel is powerless, that it's deficient in some way, that it led to the suffering of its most outspoken minister. In that case, who's going to glory in the gospel message? Paul says, I am. I will. It might be normal look on suffering as indicating that the gospel is something to be ashamed of, but Paul says that is the wrong way to look at it. Rather, he rejoices in his suffering because he is suffering for their sake. He's there for their sake. For the Colossians and other believers, too, he says, I'll suffer and rejoice in it because... It connects me in corporate solidarity with Christ. And three, he says, it serves to expand the church. In other words, the gospel does all these things. It connects them to the believers in classe, connects them to Christ. It sees the church expand. And all these things makes any suffering that it brings worth it. Paul rejoices in his personal suffering, we could say, because it magnifies Christ. Paul did not expect Christian service to come easy. That was never an expectation he had. After all, serving Christ means serving one who died on the cross as the cornerstone, the key aspect of his ministry. So anything that's going to focus on that event should anticipate there's going to be suffering involved. That event, the cross of Christ, that's not the kind of beginning that one would expect would make for an easy path. And then that one who died on the cross, remember he says, take up your what? Cross and follow me. It's not a message of ease, folks. So why do we get bent out of shape when serving Christ seems to be hard? We should expect That it will involve hardships. That's the point Paul's making here. None of us have spent any time in prison because of Christ. At least not yet. That hasn't been part of what we've had to endure. Now, there have been preachers in Canada over the last couple of years who have spent time in prison. They've gone to jail just because they insisted that their churches should have a right to gather so that they could worship together. And we watched that happen. And we were surprised that it would happen so near us. But I don't know why we were surprised. Pastors and church members have faced prison for assembling to worship from the time of Christ onward. That's all of church history is filled with examples of that. Why should it surprise us for it to happen again? The real question is, are we ready for it to happen to us? Are we ready for it to happen to us? Should possible imprisonment come here? Are we ready for it? It seems hard to imagine that we will discover that we're ready for that kind of hardship when we're not even ready for the hardship of giving up an evening for Bible study. You know, setting aside TV and, and the things that we want to do and come out to time a Bible study, that's too much to ask. What makes us think we're ready for real hardship? It's unlikely we'll be ready to face imprisonment when we shun ridicule by hiding our Christian identity from our neighbors. Will you suffer for Christ? That is the question I'm asking you to ask yourself. Will you suffer for Christ? Will you get a vaccine if it's necessary to worship Christ? Will you wear a face mask if it's necessary for you to worship Christ? If you struggle to answer yes to any of those questions, what makes you think you're ready to really suffer for Christ? You might be sitting here say, "It's unfair for anybody to ask me to do either of those things." I would agree with you. It's unfair to be asked to vaccinate, or unfair to ask wear a face mask to worship. It's unfair. So what? The world has never been fair to Christians. The question is, are you willing to suffer to worship Christ? What we should expect from the world is hardship. We should expect unfairness, ridicule, imprisonment even. Part of our stewardship duty to magnify Christ involves hardship. We are responsible for doing our part to magnify Christ. The first thing we can learn from Paul's example here, his testimony, is that part of magnifying Christ involves hardship. Examine yourself. Are you ready to give an account of the responsibility you've been given? We are responsible for doing our part to magnify Christ. Let's move on to a second thing we can learn from Paul's testimony. A second thing we can learn is that our part to magnify Christ involves the gospel message. He involves the gospel message. Including the gospel as, as something that, that we need to be stewards of, that, that should really come as no surprise. After all, Christianity is about the gospel message, isn't it? It is what makes Christianity, Christianity is the gospel. Still, we should note that, that Paul spends the bulk uh, of this sentence expanding his responsibility around the gospel. Verses 25 through 27 all expand on, on Paul's care of the gospel. In fact, this is, <coughs> excuse me. this is where we get the idea of stewardship from overall. Paul writes in verse 25 that he was made a minister according to the stewardship of the gospel. In the King James Version, is translated as the dispensation of God. That, that word that we have translated there is stewardship or dispensation. That, that word comes from the management of a household. In the Roman world, it was quite common for a trusted slave to be given the responsibility to manage the house. At least significant portions of it. Somewhat like you remember in the Old Testament where Joseph was given the management of Potiphar's house. There's a responsibility there, and that's the word that Paul's using. Paul states that God is the master who assigned to him the task that he's doing. And everything he's doing has this stewardship responsibility. And that stewardship involves carrying the word of God to others. Well, the same is true for us. We've been called to the task of magnifying Christ to the world around us, and central to that task is the gospel message. We need to fully understand what the gospel message is. It, it certainly involves all the details about who Christ is and what he's done, what what we would consider giving the gospel. It includes knowing those things, but it also includes The significance of those things, explaining to people how that applies to their life, that they need to understand that faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to have their sins forgiven. Yet it goes beyond even that. Paul calls it here the mystery which has been hidden. In Paul's language, mystery, that that's the entire program that, that God has, the entire program that he has that centers on the church. In other words, the gospel message points to and includes the church. Paul's already explained that, that the church is the body of Christ. Yet now he's referring to it as a mystery. Why is he doing that? That term mystery, that that means a revealed truth, something that, that could not be discovered on its own, something that was hidden from mankind until God reveals it. The mystery that Paul is concerned with, even as he makes more clear in his letter to the Ephesians, but hints at here, the mystery that he's referring to is that the church involves the Gentiles. Now, that was shocking news to. Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles stand equally before God, the Hebrew God. Remember, in their day, the God that Paul's talking about is the Hebrew God. He's the God of the Jews, the Hebrews. But Paul says, no, the mystery that's revealed is he's the God of all people. No one, regardless of ethnicity, is excluded from the gospel message. Nor does anyone have a leg up before God. All are equal before him. Through the work of Christ, anyone can find forgiveness. And all come equally through the work of Jesus Christ to God. That's the message of the cross, the the gospel message. Friends, we need to comprehend that we are surrounded by people who do not know this all-important truth. As Dr. Clay reminded us a few weeks ago, we live in a world that's divided by ethnicities in every which way you can slice and dice it. So that we live in a country that has segregated churches by every ethnicity you can imagine. That's because we're surrounded by people who are confused. People live under the delusion that that they are fine, that God will accept them as they are. We have people who live under delusion that, that they can negotiate through their own efforts a, a manner to be right with God. People live under the delusion that their family name or their church identity, their baptism, their confirmation, a whole list of things people come up with and say, this makes me right with God. Our people live under the delusion that there is no God. The reality is people all around us need the gospel message. We are stewards of the gospel message. We have a responsibility, a task that's been given to us by God himself that, that shatters this delusion that people are within and turns them to the truth of the cross. And we are accountable for our diligence in communicating this message. Examine yourself. Are you doing your part? Look at us as a church. Are we doing our part? And let me give you a hint. If you examine us and you come to the conclusion as a church we're doing our our part, you're still under a delusion. Because we have empty pews all over us. And we have people all around us in the city that need to know Christ. I love the way Paul sums up the gospel at the end of verse 27. Do you want to know what the gospel message is? Paul says, It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. As the ensemble sang this morning, in Christ alone, that is the gospel. You must accept that you cannot save yourself. Only Christ can save you. You must yield to to Him alone. Your will must be placed under His will. You must trust Him as your Savior. And when you do, He lives in you. That's when you have the hope of glory. Do you have that hope? Is Christ in you? If not, talk to me before you leave today. For all of us who say, yes, Christ is in me, I have him. Are we communicating that to those who do not have him? We are responsible for doing our part to magnify Christ. Our part to magnify Christ involves the gospel message. That, that's the second thing that, that we can learn here from Paul's testimony of his life. This is what we are to be about. We have to give an account of how we are doing in this, It's a stewardship that we have from God. Thirdly, as we continue to examine Paul's life, we, we learn that our part to magnify Christ involves people. People. Now, I've already talked some about people, but if you start to wonder about the inclusiveness of the gospel message, look at verse 28. Three times in one verse, Paul says, Every man, every man, every man, Paul writes, we proclaim him, that's Christ, to every man. Some versions even translate as, we preach instead of proclaim. Preach, because the the word that Paul uses is a word that that communicates the announcement of something that's already occurred. It's a proclamation, it's a preaching, it's a statement of an astonishing fact. Something has happened. What has happened? Christ. Christ has happened. Christ has... Come. He he has died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. Christ. Paul and Timothy are announcing Christ, and they're announcing it to every man. Notice, though, when he talks about this announcement, it is not just a recitation of facts. Paul writes that they admonish every man, he writes that they teach every man. There's a warning and a teaching aspect that go together with the gospel message. And that's really what I meant earlier when I talked about the significance of the gospel. It's not just talking about what Christ has done. It's talking about how that applies to life. There's a warning that unless you believe in Jesus Christ, you have no hope of glory. There's a teaching that believing in Jesus Christ means he lives in you and your life is now his We must include all of this. And this warning and this teaching, it does not stop with what we call saving faith. It doesn't stop with just the beginning gospel message, place your faith in Jesus Christ. Look at the purpose statement that Paul gives us in in verse 28. He gives us purpose. Why does he warn every man? Why does he teach every man? He does it so that we, he and Timothy, we may present every man... Complete in Christ. That that word complete, or some versions translate it perfect, that, that word means mature. Mature. The goal of the gospel message is to make every man, or woman too, because Paul's being as inclusive as he can be with language, The goal is to make sure every man and woman will stand before God, not only forgiven in Christ, but mature in Christ. Mature. The admonishing and the teaching is not just to get people saved, if to see people sanctified. That is the ultimate goal. The the absolute inclusivity of the gospel is so that all will become spiritually mature. I think I mentioned before that at the end of February, Pastor Aaron and Carl and I went to spend a few days away for a staff retreat. And, and part of that time we discussed and prayed together, part of that time of discussion and prayer surrounded what we could do to help every person in this church progress toward maturity. Our concern is that some people from time to time may, if you want to use the image, they may pull off the, the road of uh, of spiritual sanctification, come pull off to the side with a spiritual flat tire. And then they might just sit there with a spiritual flat tire because they don't know what to do. And if they sit alongside the road of sanctification, not moving forward at all, they become discouraged because they don't know what to do with their spiritual flat tire. And they're no longer maturing. We know that our job is to come alongside and and help people change that spiritual flat tire and get back on the road of sanctification. Because every believer wants to become mature in Christ. We have concern that every person in this church is presented to Christ mature, complete in Christ. But what I want you to notice, as Paul writes this, is this is not our concern alone. Yes, I have the concern of pastor, and Pastor Aaron and Carl, they, they have the concern, but ours is a special responsibility to oversee the church, but our concern that everyone is complete in Christ is not ours alone. We all share the responsibility of admonishing and teaching every man so that every man is complete in Christ. For a year now, we've been encouraging all of you to get involved in one-on-one discipleship, We're encouraging that because we all have the responsibility of magnifying Christ. And magnifying Christ involves people. We must engage with people. I, Pastor Aaron, Carl, we cannot fix all the spiritual flat tires that occur in our church. Frankly, we may not even know about some of the spiritual flat tires. But between all of us we can get involved in fixing the spiritual fat tires of one another. We can ensure that every person is heading toward completeness in Christ. I'm encouraged that many have started working in in with someone else, and, and they're working together to help one another grow in spiritual maturity. But some of you still need to get involved. You need to get involved so that you can help others. You are not serving Christ sufficiently. You are not magnifying Christ to the level that you ought. You are not ready for your accountability when you will stand before him if all you are doing is mowing grass, painting walls, fixing things in this building, and so forth. Yes, those things need to get done. I'm not belittling any of that. That is work that needs to get done, but that is not engaging with people. And the ministry that we are accountable for involves people. You need to admonish and teach so that you may present someone complete in Christ. That's where discipleship comes in. It's not a formal teaching. We're not all gifted to teach in that we don't all stand up and teach in a classroom setting. But all of us are to be admonishing and teaching others so that they will be presented mature to Christ. I'm not telling you that it will be easy. What I'm telling you is that you are responsible. You have, you have a stewardship. And you will stand before your master and give an account to him. We are responsible for doing our part to magnify Christ. Our part to magnify Christ involves people. That's the third thing that that we learn as we look through Paul's testimony here. And yet, there's another thing. There's one more. There's probably more, but we're running out of time. So we'll go with one more. There's one more thing we can learn this morning regarding our responsibility. What is part of our part in magnifying Christ? And and that is that our part to magnify Christ involves Christ's energy. Involves Christ's energy. If you think about it suffering for the gospel sounds exhausting taking time to communicate the the gospel message to all the people around us who need that message that sounds exhausting getting involved in lives of people who are growing through the gospel message in case you don't know people can be exhausting that sounds exhausting having responsibility for all three of these things that we've seen today, that sounds overwhelming, beyond exhausting, doesn't it? Well, let's remember Paul was just like us. He, too, had to deal with all the exhaustion that comes from serving Christ. In fact, in verse 29, Paul uses the word labor to describe all that he's doing. He says, for this purpose, for these things that we've just looked at, for all of this, I labor. And the word he uses is a word that means toil, wearisome toil, being exhausted kind of toil. That's the word that he uses. Paul readily admits that, that doing this job, communicating Christ to every man, helping every man grow while, while suffering for he readily admits it's hard, it's toilsome, it's wearisome. But look at the rest of the verse. He is not doing it through his own energy. Striving according to the his power, which works mightily within me. Or mightily works within me. For this purpose also I labor. Wearisome toil. How? Striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. In fact, the the word that we have translated there is power in the New American Standard. It's a a word that has the idea of energy. If the power that enables something to function, what you might want to think of is is water that flows over a water wheel, giving it the energy to do its work. Or maybe you could think of the electricity in this microphone here that, that gives it the energy to work. Paul says, this, this, this power, it's the energy working within me. Well, what energy is that that works within me? The energy of Christ. Christ gives Paul the energy needed to fulfill his stewardship responsibilities. And the same is true for us. We have the same energy enabling our stewardship as Paul had enabling his Our Savior Himself is the one working within us. There there is no such thing as a claim that we cannot do what God asks us to do because we have Christ's energy. We, We might get tired. We might get exhausted. But our Savior will not. We might feel overwhelmed. But our Savior is not. If we can lean on Him, if we have access to His power, we can do anything He has asked us to do. That means when someone calls in the evening and they need spiritual help and you are tired because it's been a long day and you know you have to get up tomorrow early for the next day and yet they need your help tonight. This means that you can agree to guide them through their problems. It means you will not die from lack of sleep. Christ will give you the energy to do what you need to do. He will enable you to serve him. This means that when you see the opportunity to share Christ with your neighbor, but you're terrified to do that, this verse means you can open your mouth and begin speaking about Christ. Because Christ will give you the energy you need to do so. We have Christ's energy that enables us to magnify him. That's one observation that we can make from what Paul writes here. We have Christ's energy, and that energy enables us to do what we're called to do to magnify Christ. So observe that, but also as we observe that, let's observe how incredible this is. Remember, we have a stewardship. We've been given a task by a master. We have something that we are being held accountable to do. But what kind of master master gives a task and then gives the energy required to do that task? The reality is most masters, as we think about masters, they're a lot more like Pharaoh was to the Israelites when he told them, Build more bricks without straw. Your task is build bricks. I'm not giving you what you need to do it, but you're responsible for getting it done, and if you don't, I'll whip you for it. That's how most masters operate. What kind of master is it that says, here's the task I'm giving you to do, and I'm giving you everything you need to do it? Our God is as obstinate as the Egyptian pharaoh as a master can be. Our God is gracious. He's loving. Yes, he's given us the task of magnifying his son. But then... Our God has gone and given us everything we need to do the task by giving us the energy of His Son to fulfill our task. We have Christ's energy within us so that we can magnify Christ. The response that we should have to the fact that He has given us all we need should be increased love, increased praise, increased adoration for our Master. Of course, we can both display our love and our adoration and our praise by living as faithful stewards. Doing what we have been called to do. Utilizing the energy that he gives us. Because as we live faithfully, Christ is magnified. That means he is put on display in an increasing way because it's his energy that's flowing out of us. We are responsible for doing our part to magnify Christ. Our part to magnify Christ involves His energy. We are responsible. That is our main lesson this morning. We are responsible for doing our part to magnify Christ. I learned about responsibility when I had to stand before my difficult customer and tell him I am responsible. Period. Period. I am responsible. That was in the workplace world. A temporal place where really the end of the day, what I was responsible for doesn't matter into eternity. 3,000 years from now, nobody really cares at all what I was responsible for temporal, in temporal sense. In fact, it's been enough years past it, none of us care what I was responsible for on that day. folks, we are responsible for magnifying Christ. That matters for all eternity. 3,000 years from now, it will still matter that we magnify Christ. We've seen this morning, our responsibility to do that involves several things. One, our part to magnify Christ involves suffering. Self-examination. Are you ready for suffering? Two, our part to magnify Christ involves the gospel message. Self-examination Is the gospel message, the core of your life. Three, our part to magnify Christ involves people. Examine your life. Where do people fit? Four, our part to magnify Christ involves Christ's energy. Are you leaning on Christ? Examine yourself. Are you trying to do all these things through your own effort and that's why you're exhausted? Are you rejoicing that Christ's energy flows through you? We are responsible for doing our part to magnify Christ. All of us. We are responsible for doing our part to magnify Christ. Let's pray. Father, I do come to you this morning with joy in my heart that we can come in the name of Christ to our great, holy God. We come through his righteousness to you, but we also come, as we've seen today, through his enablement. So, Father, as we come to you, we come with humility because we cannot do anything on our own, but great joy because we have Christ within us. Father, I also come to you with confession in my own soul. I know that I've not fulfilled my stewardship as I ought. And I expect that many of us echo that same sentiment. So I pray today that you would help all of us to examine our lives, to see where we have failed in our stewardship, and to fix the problem. To increase in our confidence that Christ will enable us. And to do what you've called us to do. So that we are magnifying Christ to the world you've placed around us. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.